Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Well, good morning. Yeah, that's still weird. I always appreciate the opportunity to uh, present a lesson from God's Word. And uh, if you could have asked me yesterday, I would have said yes. I would have probably wouldn't be that great. And I don't know that every sermon I do, I do is a gem. But I like doing the biblical dialogue stuff. And uh, apparently y'all kind of like it too. I, I get a lot of good feedback on that, and I, I appreciate that. And so this morning, once again, I'd like to do that. And the text we're going to be looking at is in Matthew chapter 16. It's going to be a short passage this morning. There's really only two main points to it, but we'll get more out of it when we break down the dialogue. Uh, just as a matter of, of preface, as introduction, a dialogue is defined as a written composition in which two or more people are represented as conversing. It's a conversation between two or more people. It's an exchange of ideas and opinions and the conversational element of literary and dramatic composition. And it's that fourth definition that I always like to delve into when we look at dialogues that are taken from Scripture. I love dialogue. It's my favorite part in a film or in a, a TV show or when I'm reading a book. And the Bible is chock full of some of the best dialogues that have been preserved for men. And especially some of my favorite dialogues are those of Jesus which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So, let's look at the text. Beginning in uh, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So in the previous verses in this chapter, verses 13 through 20, that holds the account of Peter's confession of Jesus Christ. If you'll remember, Jesus had to ask his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they rattled off who people were comparing Jesus to. And then Jesus asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up as Peter often does, and recognizes him 
as the Son of the living God. And based on that confession, Jesus then blesses him. And it's at this point, it's sometime directly after this, that Jesus begins to clue them in on what he's about to go through, about what he's endured. The fact that he's going to have to return to Jerusalem. They already know that the Jewish leaders, religious and otherwise, do not like Jesus. And they're going to give him a hard time. A hard time to the point where they're going to put him to death. But Jesus also tells them that he'll rise the third day. And this is the first instance that he clues them into that. Uh, the second occurrence is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. And then the third instance is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 through 19. This exchange between Peter and Jesus, it denotes the close relationship that they had. It's a closeness that's evidenced throughout the remainder of Christ's ministry. Peter is one of the three apostles that Christ takes with him when he goes up upon the mount for his transfiguration. You see that in chapter 17 in verse 1. But also in Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his disciples go into it with him, Jesus takes Peter and James and John a little further in with him when he goes to pray. Peter is one of his closest companions during his ministry. There is such an existing intimacy and camaraderie between them at this early stage that Peter feels comfortable pulling Jesus aside to rebuke him. And rebuke is pretty much the topic of the lesson this morning. It comes in two forms. The first one is this denial by Peter. He begins by saying, far be it from you, Lord. And this phrase has always struck me as though the very notion of Jesus being executed just kind of strikes Peter as being preposterous. And he's saying, can you hear yourself? What are you talking about? Forget about it. I don't know that Peter sounded like he was from Jersey, but he's just like, far be it from you. Your translation may render that phrase differently. Your translation may render that as God be merciful or gracious to you. And what Peter actually seems to be implying is that God is watching over and protecting Jesus, that he has his back. And in a sense, that's true. There have been instances already, and you can find some of those in Luke chapter 4, verses 28 through 30, or Luke 16, verse 11, or Mark chapter 3 and verse 6, where people have already wanted to kill Jesus. But it didn't happen. It was prevented. And Peter's supposition is that 
God isn't going to let that happen. And he's not entirely wrong. God's not going to let anything transpire that will augment his plan for Jesus. And that means his death in an untimely fashion, in an untimely manner. Therefore, based on that, Peter feels confident in saying, this shall never happen to you. Not going to happen. You don't know what you're talking about. I like Peter. Probably because I identify with him. Many of his character traits, one of which is that he shoots from the lip. And I'm bad about doing that. My wife gets on to me all the time. But that does not mean he is not speaking from his heart. And here is the thing I really like about Peter. See, Peter always wants to be right with Jesus. Always. And you can't begrudge him that. It's just that he's all over the spectrum about it sometimes. So, uh, if you recall, John chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. The occasion of the Last Supper. And Jesus takes a basin and girds himself with a towel and gets down and begins to wash the disciples' feet, right? And he gets to Peter, and Peter's like, you washing my feet? And Jesus says, yes, I'm washing your feet. You don't understand this right now, but you will in time. And Peter goes, you never wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And what is Peter's response? Okay, don't forget my hands and my head too. Big flip there, right? Also, Matthew chapter 26, verses 31 through 35, and we'll come back and read that toward the end of the sermon. But Peter avows that he will never forsake Jesus, that he will never deny him. Instead, he refutes that by saying, I'll die with you. The account in Luke chapter 22 and verse 33, he says, I will go to prison or to death with you. And he means it. But in that same chapter, Matthew chapter 26, the last seven verses of that chapter contain what? Peter's denial. See, he flipped again. Peter says and does some stupid things. I say and do stupid things. No secret. You say and do stupid things. We all do. But Peter's love and loyalty are always to the Lord. And there's a lot of things you can challenge about his words and his deeds, but you cannot challenge his fealty. Except for those three times that he denied Jesus. Take into consideration the fact also that Jesus' claim that he's going to be put to death 
had to be incredulous to his disciples. It had to be absolutely shocking that he would be telling them this. But Peter's tact in speaking with him privately is not to console or encourage him. Instead, he, he likes to be what I call blue-collar blunt and just flat-out tells him, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Was that his tact? Was it stern and adamant? Was it obnoxiously condescending? Honestly, his tone and his tact really don't matter. It's his perspective. You see, I'm sure he thinks he's helping, but he's not. And the response that he gets from Jesus is probably the last thing he expected. He gets a denouncement. Get behind me, Satan. Okay, this is the moment of audience participation. How many of you have ever, have ever uttered these words to anybody? Hey, not just me. I am surprised. What kind of look did you get? Get a double take? Because I know I did. And the few times I've uttered this phrase, I've done so in jest. But still, that strikes people as odd. To make a comparison of them to Satan, that didn't go over very well, does it? That's what Jesus hit Peter with. A verbal slap in the face. You've got to remember, he has just previously confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And now he rebukes him for speaking about his death. And such a line as this is no less tempting to Jesus than when Satan tempted him personally. Especially, if you recall, back over in Matthew chapter 4 and the first 10 verses there that contain that episode. When Satan challenges Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and that God's angels would catch him before he landed. That same implication that God is protecting him, watching over him, will let no harm come to him. That is the same thing that Peter is saying to Jesus. That's why he makes that comparison. And I also want you to think about the duality of the nature of Christ. Yes, he is divine. But he is also mortal. Self-preservation. The desire to live is hardwired into humanity. We don't want to die. Jesus knows why he's here. He knows God's plan. He knows what is required of him. And surely, 
This is something that he struggles with. And I have no doubt in my mind that many of the prayers throughout his ministry prior to ever going into the Garden of Gethsemane, that he probably prayed about this because he knew it was coming. And you think about how tormented he felt in the Garden of Gethsemane when even an angel was sent to strengthen him, but he's sweating as drops of blood because he is so distressed. Yeah, what Peter is saying to him sounds good. It would be nice. But Jesus' response doesn't stop at comparing Peter to Satan. You are an offense to me. The Greek word that offense is taken from, your translation may say a stumbling block, is scandalon. Scandalon refers to a stick or a stone that is part of the trip to set off a trap or a snare. It's an impediment. It's probably derived from the root word kamto, which is Greek, which means to bow or bend the knee. So when the word kamto is used to bow or bend the knee, that's something that's done willingly. It's an act of subjection. Scandalon, to trip and fall, bow and bend the knee. You didn't mean to do that. We derive our word scandal from that. Think about people that are caught in some crime or in some sin. It becomes public knowledge. It ruins their reputation. They have tripped and fallen in the face of the public. That is what Jesus is telling Peter. You're an offense to me. Peter's remarks potentially threatened Christ's resolve and could result not in a bow of humility and obedience to God on Jesus' part, but a fall of humiliation in that he would not accomplish God's will. And Jesus is not having that. The very notion that he would not accomplish God's will is offensive to him. It's the whole reason he left heaven and came to earth. And he's not going to risk someone undermining his determination to fulfill God's plan. He's going to shut that down real quick. And so Peter is dealt another verbal slap. He's been compared to Satan. He's been called an offense. Jesus is essentially telling him, look, I know you think you're helping, but you're not. The sentiment you have expressed could actually trip me up, and I'm not having that. Let me tell you why. For you are not mindful of the things of God, 
but the things of men. That is the core issue. Peter's perspective is all wrong. And look, it's not just Peter. It's all the disciples. Their perspective of Jesus, his appearance as the Messiah, what that means, is all wrong. One of the dominant themes in the Gospel of Matthew is the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist uses it. So does Jesus. And the apostles, like all the other Jews, were hung up on a Messiah who would reign as their king and restore the nation of Israel to its former prominence. They were suffering under Roman rule, and they longed for the great days of David, when it was Israel that was feared and respected. But somehow, in hearing all the times that Jesus referenced the kingdom of heaven, they didn't hear the of heaven part. It just seemed like he's talking about the kingdom. We're going to get a kingdom. Now listen to the whole message. Their perspective is about the physical establishment of a physical kingdom. And that's not it. They seem to keep forgetting that, uh, well, they're not forgetting it. Look, God did the physical kingdom of Israel at one point. It did not work out good for them. That was their own fault. But that was never God's plan anyway. That was just a precursor to the kingdom that he intended. And when the prophet spoke of a coming Messiah, they also alluded to the type of kingdom that he was coming to establish. There's references of that in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, chapter 49, verses 5 and 6, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. I probably could have filled up a PowerPoint slide with all the passages that reference that. Peter and the other apostles needed a harsh perspective adjustment And we know that even after this, they still don't really get what Jesus is setting out to accomplish. But they will. Let's talk application. We need to be careful with rebuke. Look, at times, rebuke is necessary, and we're told to use it. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. But we need to make sure that when we approach someone for that purpose, that we're coming at it from the right place and the right heart, and that rebuke is actually the right tactic in that moment. And like Jesus and Peter, we need to have a rapport with one another so that we feel comfortable and compelled to offer or accept rebuke when needed. Rebuke 
is a two-edged knife. It cuts both ways. You can't just dish it out. Because there are going to be times when you have to take it, when you need to take it. And we need to remember that. And now while rebuke is meant to be harsh in order to drive the point home, it is also first and foremost meant to be corrective. It's not just rebuking someone to tell them everything you find wrong with them about what they're doing. It's got to be a constructive criticism. And it can be harsh, but it needs to be corrective. It doesn't have to be condescending, even though condescension is a form of rebuke. We just seem to comfortably slip into that one sometimes. Second application. If we're going to speak to the things of God, then we should actually be mindful of the things of God, not the things of men. That is a fantastic perspective to have every day. You see, the majority of the world, people that are both religious and irreligious, they want to speak to the things of God without actually being mindful of the things of God. And some do so out of genuine misunderstanding and misapplication. But there are some that do so deliberately. You see, they prefer to speak to the things of God out of the mindfulness of men on purpose in an attempt to disparage and mischaracterize and blatantly disregard what he says. They do so in order to negate the things that the Father has set forth, commanded, and specified. And there's a whole slew of social topics that fall within that purview these days. I know you're well aware of that. Because you're a Christian, because, unlike them, you will not call what is good evil and what is evil good, they are going to consider your godliness offensive. And we're warned that this will happen. And look, I get it. We want to influence people for good. We want to influence people to come to the Lord, to take advantage of God's grace, to take advantage of the salvation that comes through the gift and the sacrifice of Jesus' death. But that's the way the gospel works. Sinners are either offended by it or they are convicted and convinced to obey it. And if someone is continually berating you, putting you down, or badgering you, or rebuking you because of your faith, 
Brethren, I don't think it's wrong to tell that person that it is they who are an offense to you. And maybe they need to hear, get behind me, Satan. That's a judgment call on your part. In conclusion, Peter often gets a bad rap. And look, I don't want to end this sermon leaving Peter cast in a bad light. I want to point out something of particular interest about Peter. I want to quickly read through these passages, and I want you to pay close attention to the details. So let's go to Matthew 26. Beginning in verse 31, this is when Jesus predicts Peter's denial. It says, and then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble, there's that word scandal on, because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble, because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 50 and 51. They have left and gone to the Garden of Eden. Judas comes to betray him with a bunch of people. And in verse 50 it says, And then one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear, and he healed him. John chapter 18. I don't have it up there, but I'd like you to look at verse 3 very quickly. This says, Judas, having received a detachment of troops, that's Roman soldiers, And officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, many passages refer to this as a multitude. It's a lynch mob that has come to get Christ. But then look in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And that servant's name was Malchus. I think it's interesting that in all the accounts, except for in John, when it talks about the attack on the servant of the high priest, it always just says, and one of them, one of the disciples did it. And John's like, it's Peter. It was Peter. Peter did it. 
Just want everyone to know that for the record. Peter cut off his ear. Now, I don't know if he's doing that just because he thinks. I want him to. I wonder if he does it because Peter deserves some sort of accolade. I don't know. But he specifies that. You see, you remember we read. Peter said he would die with Jesus. And the account in Luke 22 says, I will go to prison with you. I will die with you. Peter wasn't playing when he said that. He attacked a man in the midst of an armed mob with Roman soldiers present. I'll tell you something. Peter was going to prison. Or he could very well have been executed just like Jesus was. But Jesus held the servant's ear. What is there to prosecute Peter for? No harm, no foul, right? I really think Jesus spared him right then. But here is the skinny. Peter said that he was willing to go to prison or die. And he proved that prior to denying Jesus. You have to give him that. What I want to know is, look, rebuke works as a form of conviction and encouragement. The word of God convicts, it rebukes, and it encourages us to obey the gospel call of salvation. And it convicts, and it rebukes, and it encourages us throughout our lives as a Christian in his service. But do we have the same verve and vigor and dedication that Peter had? Because you start looking in the accounts in Acts, and we know that Peter went to prison. That he suffered for the cause of the gospel. And if you put any stock in traditional history, then you know that Peter was also martyred for the cause of the gospel in a fashion similar to his Lord. We give Peter a hard time. He deserves it sometimes, granted. But I like him. And I respect him. And he didn't walk away from the Lord when he got rebuked. How many people do that? How many people can't take it and make the correction? Because unlike Peter, maybe they don't always want to be right with Jesus. 
We need rebuke sometimes. We need to have Peter's verve and vigor and dedication. And if you've never rendered obedience to the gospel, you need to ask yourself, do you have that? Are you willing to put away your old man, to die to Christ, to be buried in the waters of baptism and arise a new creature, free of your sins, to live your life for the Lord, dedicated to him and his purpose and his service? Because if you do, then take advantage of this opportunity now. Please, as we stand and sing. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's Word with us, Please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.